So the sun was setting in uh, the Luapula Valley, Zambia, and we were sitting there in a rural health clinic. Sorry for the poor quality. This is just a video off my little camera. And we're sitting there, and, and these are the, the men and women, primarily women, who run these amazing ministries to help the blind in the Luapula Valley. We were in uh, far north Zambia, a place known popularly as the Valley of the Blind. And this clinic, as we pulled up, the sun was setting. It's a little more than a cement shed. We were met there by a guy named James. He's the clinician, clinician there. He met us at the roadside and led us in. And this, this is the scene. We're greeted with songs and then story after story, testimony after testimony of people who said, I was blind, but now I see. Teachers who, who said that I, I use my classroom to, to reach out to the students to, to diagnose early problems. Witch doctors who share stories about how they used to ruin people's eyes, but now they work to help bring them new sight. A village headman stood up and told us about the work being done in his village and how it's changed their lives over the time. And then James told us about the fact that he actually performs surgeries on people's eyes there in the clinic every day. And then the last story, the story that I... This woman right here, she can't be more than a little over 20 years old. A young mom, you can see her baby in her arms. James stood up and said she came in today and uh, the surgery that she needs is a surgery that can only be done in Lusaka, which is a huge distance from there, 14-hour car ride. Just the transportation there and back would cost about 200 U.S. dollars. That's three months' wages in their world. But if she doesn't have the surgery, this 20-some-year-old mom will go blind for the rest of her life. And he stopped everything and said in his broken English, I'm begging you on my knees, please help her. So we're getting ready to leave and it's us and these nuns and these witch doctors and James and these volunteers and we all go outside under this massive, immense Zambian sky in the middle of what they call the bush, this utter wilderness. And, and the stars are twinkling in a way that I've never seen before. And we stop and we pray. Me, James, the nuns, and we pray. And then from there, we had about a three-hour ride home across these immense wetlands. Because that's how far it was to the nearest city. Everything else is just villages. And we were going back to our hotel, and as we're driving 150 kilometers an hour across this wilderness. I'm just trying to process, you know, what have I seen? Why did God want me to come here? What are we supposed to do with this? A couple months earlier, Doug Balfour, the man who was brushing his teeth there, had asked me, hey Paul, I, I'm going on a trip this spring. Would you, I'd like it if you could come with me. I just want to show you what I do. He said, I'm, I'm going to be going to Zambia, Malawi. And, uh, and at that point, I don't know about you, but I 
probably couldn't even find Zambia and Malawi on a map. I kind of had some sense of Southern Africa, but if I actually had to po- pick them out, I really wouldn't know. And at that point, the only exotic places I'd ever been, I'd, I went to um, Ecuador as a kid. And then I, as an adult, went to Albania. And that Albania was really foreign to me. It's the poorest country in Europe. And so from, from that perspective, that was really shocking and jarring to me. But I would come to see that the difference between European poverty, between our poverty, and between African poverty, it's a completely different category. It's hard to wrap your mind around life in southern Africa. The roads are filled with women walking with big baskets on their head and children on their backs. Everyone's trying to sell something that every time you slow down the car, the roads are full of these goats and chickens instead of cars. Every morning when I would go for a run at 5.30 in the morning, there were already a group of women gathering water for the day to take it back to their villages. Barefoot children are running everywhere. There's entire regions without electricity. One of the things that just, just you can't even fathom this. We're in the, the, inter- the international airport in Malawi. In the capital city, Lilongwe. And that airport has one gate. And we're standing at the gate, because there's only one. And I look out the window, and there are crowds. Dozens and dozens of people out in the field that morning all cutting, cutting the, uh, the lawn, mowing the grass by hand with a primitive hand tool. There must have been 40 or 50 people out there. Can you imagine living in a world where it's actually cheaper to pay 50 people to work all morning to cut the grass than to buy a single lawnmower? Like it's just a different world. It's a different kind of poverty. It's a different way of seeing things. And so I, I was going into this trip thinking, I really want to experience that, right? I'm a, I don't know how you guys are on these trips, but I, I'm not scared. I'm excited. Like, I want to eat what they eat. I want to sleep where they sleep. I want to walk where they walk. I want to dress like they dress. I want to suck in the real Zambian experience. But after just a couple of days with three international experts, that was who I was traveling with, I learned that Mzungas, white people like me, who try and experience the real Zambian life, end up dying. Like, seriously. Our joke, but that wasn't really a joke, is there are many ways to die in Africa. Every day we discovered a new one. You know, of course we have the categories like elephants and hippos and lions. Okay, now that's, that's true. You can die that way. In fact, on one of our walks, we, um, we saw a gravestone to someone who had actually been trampled by an elephant. So it's possible. That is a way to die there. But that's, really, that's not really how people like me die over there. I'll tell you how people like me die over there. It's, it's much more mundane. It's, you get a little bit of dirt in your mouth. And in that dirt, there are worms. And you don't notice it at first, not for months, maybe not for years, maybe not for decades. But what happens is those worms get into your internal organisms, uh, organs and they multiply and multiply and multiply, causing irreparable damage. By the time you notice there's really something wrong with me, it's too late. Or the flies land on your face covered in trachoma. You take a swim and you get schistosomiasis and all kinds of other parasites enter into your body. You take a drink of water and it's full of dysentery, cholera, or worse. Mosquito lands on you. 
I was bit probably a dozen times while I was over there. You can get any number of varieties of malaria, but that's if you're lucky. If you're unlucky, you actually get the rare disease called elephantitis, where, where your lymph nodes start swelling until entire parts of your body, you start looking like the elephant man. This is, this is, not, this is not out of the ordinary things. This is dirt, water, flies, mosquitoes. And these things kill hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people every year, die of the most basic, mundane, everyday things. There are many ways to die in Africa. In Zambia, there's about 14 million people. The life expectancy, I'm an old man over there. The life expectancy for a man is 37, for a woman it's 38. 87% of the population lives on less than $2 a day. Do you understand that that coffee you get at Starbucks is worth more than what they would make in an entire day's wages? One in five children under the age of five suffers from malnutrition. And then the big one, one in 40 people are blind. The basic lack of medical care, lack of transportation, makes even the simplest illnesses, things like diarrhea, can be life-threatening. So we, uh, we went to the northern section. I think I have a map of this. It's, it's right up in here, the northern section of Zambia called the Luapula Valley. And up there, there's about 1.25 million people. And we, met, we sat down at this table with the, the head of the medical, he's the head medical administrator up there. And sit down with him and he starts telling us, you know, about their medical provisions and what they have up there. I want you to listen to this. In that entire region, 1.25 million people, they have one general surgeon, one. One pediatrician and zero OBGYNs. Yeah, that's right. Okay, let's, let's put this in perspective. Ladies, all of you who've had a baby, I want you to think about this. There are five to six children in every family, in the average family, and zero OBGYNs. The small village that we went to, Sekundi, we actually sit down in this big meeting. The whole, the whole village came out, and the tribal headman stood up, and he had his son, who could speak English, read us his, his message. And in it, he began with the fact that before any help came, he said there was one month when out of 120 people that live in the village, seven died in one month. But this is only half the picture. You know, if you just listen to these stories about how you can die from everything and how there's blindness, and you would think that this is a dark, horrible place, but that's just not true. The fact of the matter is you go there, and what you find is you find people who are full of joy, you find happiness. You find people singing and dancing at every place you go. You, you find this place that is overwhelming with beauty. It's just like it's overwhelming to the senses. The smell of exotic flowers, the beauty of the landscape, the joy of the people. You find infectious smiles. We found uh, these nuns who just radiate joy. The, the volunteers who radiate joy and hope. You find that there's a world where spiritual realities are just part of life. Jesus Christ is invited to almost every meeting. And almost every conversation, that's even meetings with government officials and leaders. And so the reality is much more complex. It's not just a dark, sad place. It's actually a joyful and sorrowful place. It's a place that's full of dancing and a place that's full of desperation. So we went on this massive road trip 
we, we landed in Lusaka, which is the capital city, and drove. It's 14 hours on, through the Zambian countryside. We drove all the way up north to this, this valley. And if, uh, I actually bought one of those Zambian guides, like Guide Through Africa, and I opened it up excited to read, what does it say about this valley? And it, and it, it doesn't include it in the normal part of the Zambian guide. It includes it in the survival guide section. And then it basically says in about three lines, if you end up here, good luck. <laughs> this, is, this is the poorest place and one of the poorest nations of the world. So we were driving up there, and as you drive, you actually go through this depression in the earth there. And as you, you drive down into the valley, you can feel the air thicken with this humidity, with this heat. And the flowers start blossoming. And it's just this, it's this, like I said, it's this overload of the senses of exotic flowers and open waters and charcoal fires. And, and the sun is so bright. Like, I'm a guy who tans pretty well. That's one of my great features. And so I thought, oh, come on. I, I like going out in the sun. This is great. I was out there for like 10 minutes and I started frying. It's the most intense. You've everything there is the most extreme. I'm used to big skies, right? I came from Texas. But here I'm like... Texas looks small compared to Zambia. As you drive through, there's these isolated pockets of thunder showers that roll through just this horrific downpour, followed by these extravagant rainbows. And then you drive by these trees, which looks like something that only Dr. Seuss could have come up with. It's just, it's like the whole thing, as you drive across this countryside, this whole country, you're like, God must have been showing off when he made Zambia. And we were there going to this forbidden place for a blindness prevention project. Doug, who you met earlier, uh, he's not, couldn't be here today. He, his corporation does what's called performance philanthropy. So easy for you to say. What that is, is let's say, I'm sure all of you can relate to this, you're a billionaire, and you're like, I would really like to give away a few million dollars but I want to make sure that it's used in such a way that it's going to make a real sustainable difference in the world. Like it's going to change people's lives, not just once, but for the long term. How do I do that? Well, you go and you find Doug. And that's what Doug specializes in. How can we have the most impact, sustainable impact, with your, your donations? So here in this valley, they're specifically tackling the issue of blindness. One in 40 Zambians are blind, but that's not really true. What happens is, is you find that almost all the blindness is left in this region right here. And it's caused by preventable things, vitamin deficiency, sanitation issues, the spread of this disease called trachoma. So in that area, it's actually more like one out of eight or one out of nine people are blind. So here's what happens. The, the mom gets up in the morning. She goes down to the well before sunrise. She brings home her big giant bucket of water. And she sets it down in their little hut. And then she calls all the kids, five, six kids, however many they have. And she takes one rag and she wipes off the face, washes the sleep out of the eyes. And now that rag is full of trachoma. And then she comes to the next kid, wipes off his face, and wipes off the next and the next. And now the entire family is infected with trachoma. After multiple infections, well, what happens is, is the eyelids themselves, they start swelling and they start turning inward. And then the eyelashes start rubbing against the cornea. Over time, what happens is that causes not only extreme pain, and some of the villages you'll find people who have actually plucked out their eyelashes to try and alleviate some of that, but it also causes irreparable damage and permanent blindness. One in six kids 
will have trachoma in that valley. One in six. The good news is that Doug has come here with his billionaire friends to address these specific issues. And they found that this isn't an issue that they could deal with head on. It wasn't something they can deal with just with the families. It's a community issue. What they found is that people were so desperate to find help and they couldn't find good medical help that you do the only thing you could, which is go to the witch doctor who lived in the community. So they go to the witch doctor, and we actually had the witch doctor at that scene in the rural health clinic actually explain to us in her own words what she did for people who had trachoma. They would come to her, and she would take this herb, and we explained that it's actually a toxic herb, and she would wrap it around, and she would take this water, the unclean water, full of bacteria, full of probably trachoma itself, and she would pour the water through the toxic herb into someone's eye. And then afterwards, she would take a special rock, and she would grind it up finely, and she would pour the rock into the person's eye. Yeah. So they learned that what they have to do is not only address the medical issues, not only address the cleanliness issues, but there were these huge cultural issues that they had to deal with as a community. How do they work? So they set up this eye clinic. They set up these surgeries. They, they actually reached out to the witch doctors to say, what you're doing is destroying people's eyes. And they started bringing them all together. So this is the eye clinic where we actually went, the center of, of all this work that's being done. These are patients who have recently had surgery for trachoma. This is a man named Edward who was totally blind, both eyes, for a number of years, about three years. Came to the eye clinic, had his simple procedure done, and within a couple days had fully received his eyesight back. This is the work that's being done there. In the three years' time, through, through this multiple-prong approach, they can actually entirely do away with trachoma in that valley It'll be eradicated in three years' time through this project. It's just phenomenal what's being done there. As we pulled up to the eye clinic itself, this is the sign we saw. And I, and I wanted to stop and, uh, with today, with, with all that in mind, with, with this, this going to the Valley of the Blind, with these this complex issues that we have, this, with, I, I just want to lay out what I think is really important to see in the way these nuns, what they taught me. When you go there, this is the sign that they chose to, to represent their eye clinic because this is how they see themselves. It's directly out of the Gospel of Mark chapter 8. It's the story of Jesus healing a blind man. But it's not just any story of Jesus healing the blind man. If, if you remember the story at all, it's the weirdest story of Jesus' healings ever. Jesus actually takes the man, spits on his face, and then he only partially heals him. And then it takes another process, and then he heals him fully. It's like the whole thing is just wacky. And when you sit down and you talk to the nuns and you see their work, and you wonder, what's going on here? Why would they choose this story to represent what they're doing? And as, as you go into this world where you're going to these villages and there's swarming, cheering children, and they're singing in the background, and there's joy and there's death, and there's dancing, and there's desperation because my baby is going blind or my baby might die. And there's great faith and there's great hardship. In that context, it allowed me to see the story in a new way. It gave me vision for why the nuns see their work so, uh, so intimately tied with what Jesus did. You know, Jesus was an impoverished villager. 
You know, the roads that Jesus walked would have looked the same as their roads, mostly dirt, covered not in cars, but in goats and chickens and women carrying water on their head. You know, when I went for a run at 5.30 in the morning and saw those women out there by the well gathering water for the day, that's the same thing Jesus would have seen when he rose before the sun came up. You know how they tell time in the villages? They don't have watches. They don't have electric. So they use nature. So if you want to meet your friend, you say, Hey, I want to meet you before the sun rises. It's sometime early in the, the morning. Uh, what time do you want to meet? Well, let's do it when the cock crows three times. That's how they tell time in the villages. Just like Jesus. In some ways, this for me wasn't just a, a going to another part of the world. It felt like going back in time. And it made me appreciate this story in a way that I had never seen before, even though I've studied this passage intimately. That Jesus is, is a guy who lived around blind beggars. Like he lived among families who had lost their children to malnutrition. Like he lived among village headmen who cried out to God for help. This is the world Jesus lived in. Mark chapter 8. And they came to Bethsaida. And some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. And when he had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, Do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. Well, that's not right. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened and his sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home saying, don't even go into the village. After visiting this eye clinic, which is in a village immediately on the shore of a lake, just like Jesus was. After sitting down with the nuns and government officials and medical leaders and village headmen and a witch doctor and hundreds of volunteers, after meeting with patients whose testimony after testimony was, I was blind, but now I see. After that meeting in the rural health clinic where James looked at us and said in his broken English, I'm begging you on my knees, please help this woman. I knew why these nuns so closely and intimately saw their story connected with Jesus. Because the lines between his world and their world is entirely blurred. They live in a world where if Jesus doesn't show up in power, there is no hope. But let me tell you, he does show up and there is hope there. So over the next three days, we spent 50 hours in transit. Car rides, plane, airport, plane, airport, plane, airport, plane, airport. 50 hours. (laughs) And what is actually punishing to the body was actually really helpful for me. I found it to be a grace of God because it takes all of 50 hours to possibly process what you go through when you leave that world and come into this world. Abject poverty and our wealth. Their joy and our epidemic of depression. 
their faith in a living Jesus and our faith in ourselves. So I kept coming back over those 50 hours to this passage. And the thing that I just want to share and close with today is this. I've studied Mark chapter 8. And I know that those nuns have too. Catherine and Exilda and Rosemary, they're scholars of the scriptures and not just clinicians. And here's the thing about Mark chapter 8. It's not about blindness, at least not physical blindness. It's not. It's true that Jesus literally heals a blind man in this story. But if that's all you see in this passage, then we're missing it. See, just earlier in the chapter, Jesus actually shows up and he feeds 4,000 people with seven loaves of bread. And then they get in this boat and, and they go over to another place. And, and the Pharisees, these religious leaders, they come up and, and they, they immediately question Jesus if he's really from God or not. And Jesus, his response is to sigh deeply and then take off. And while they're heading in the boat back to the other side, what does Jesus say to his disciples? He says, you guys need to be careful. You need to watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees. To which the disciples said, yeast, stink. Who is supposed to bring the bread? Peter, did you get the bread? I didn't get the bread. Who is supposed to get the bread? Nobody got the bread. And Jesus will stop them right before this passage. And it's just going to ask them, why, why are you talking about bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see? And ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember? And then he's going to go through the two stories about the feeding the 5,000. He said, do you remember that? How many loaves did we have then? And I fed everybody. And do you remember just, just at the beginning of this chapter, how many people were there? 4,000. And how many loaves? Seven. And I fed everybody. Do you really think I'm concerned about bread? You're blind. You have eyes, but you don't see what God is doing right in front of you. And then they come up to the shores of Bethsaida, which is just like Chilonge, where where the nuns meet. And as you go there, he says... They came there, and some people brought him a blind man. And so Jesus is going to stop everything and say, Hey, blind men, I want you to see this. Do you see this blind man? I'm going to show you something. He took the blind man by the hand, led him outside the village. And when he had spit on the man's eyes, he put his hands on him. And Jesus asked, Do you see anything? Now, we need to stop right here. At this point, the disciples have seen dozens and dozens and dozens of miracles. And Jesus has never asked, Hey, did that just work or not? Like, he's never asked that. He's never asked anything. Every time there's a description of Jesus' healing, it's a command. Get out of him. Arise. Be opened. But here he's like, huh, did that just work? Let's try that. He looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking around. No, that didn't work. And this is another thing. We've never seen this. Jesus has never had to have a redo, ever. When Jesus has to have a redo, you're like, something's going on here. So the disciples, these blind men, see Jesus healing a blind man, and yet he still can't see. Jesus has to touch him again. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes, and then his eyes were opened and his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And Jesus sent him home saying, don't even go into the village. Hey, blind men, you who can't see, 
what's really going on in front of you. I have a question for you now. Who do people say that I am? Some say John the Baptist. Some say Elijah. I don't know. It's really fuzzy. People don't know who you are, Jesus. But what about you? Can you see me for who I am? Peter gets a glimmer, doesn't he? You're the Christ. Jesus' main concern here is not trachoma and vitamin deficiency and cataracts. I mean, Jesus is concerned about that. You read through the Gospels and you can't get around the fact that Jesus is very concerned about those who are physically blind. But it is more than that. If Jesus wanted to just heal this man, he could have done it with a word. But he wants all of us who are blind spiritually to see something here. That he is much more concerned with your ability to see him for who he is than for us to be able to see physically. Jesus was concerned with his disciples as he is concerned with us. That you could follow him for years. That you could see all of his miracles. That you could hear all of his words and never really know who he is. This is the turning point in the Gospel of Luke. From this point forward, we're going to see that Jesus is going to reveal himself more and more. That his purpose is not just to come as Messiah, but to come as the Messiah who must die for the sins of the world. So that three days later, by the power of God, be resurrected. Because he is not just a man. He's God in the flesh. Let me tie this in. Just like the blind man, their sight would come through this process in stages. It wouldn't be easy. It wouldn't be clean. I mean, Jesus spit on the man, for goodness sake. Now, now let me put this in context of, of what the nuns see here. That just as in Secundi, as there's this young woman who's just over 20 years old with her little baby, that if she doesn't get help, that she'll be blind for the rest of her life. Just as there's that woman there. And Jesus is concerned about that woman. Jesus is concerned about the millions upon millions of Americans who sleep in a beautiful, luxurious bed and, and wake up the next morning and spend their morning in a house that's worth hundreds of thousands of dollars and have more stuff and more medical treatment and more entertainment and more of everything you can imagine and yet are blind to who? He is. Jesus is concerned about that. And just as Jesus is concerned about the small children who get trachoma and their eyelids turn in on themselves, calling permanent blindness, Jesus is concerned about our children who through selfishness and greed, their souls are turning inward so that they can't see our glorious Savior. Just as Jesus is concerned about the ignorance of witch doctors who ruin people's eyes through their traditional healing methods, is he not concerned about the fact that when we have deep soul problems, we're going to scientists and experts and doctors to heal what only a risen Savior can heal.
Mother Teresa passed away in 1997, but I'm sure you're probably familiar with her. She worked, devoted her life to serving the poorest of the poor, the leprous in Calcutta, India. She has this famous quote from, from an interview where she actually said, I pity those in the West. And when, when the interviewer asked her about it, she said this, the spiritual poverty of the Western world is much greater than the physical poverty of our people. You in the West have millions of people who suffer such terrible loneliness and emptiness. They feel unloved and unwanted. These people are not hungry in the physical sense, but they are in another way. They know, not, they know that they need something more than money, yet they don't know what it is. What they're really missing, really, is a living relationship with God. So after my visit, I had the distinct feeling as I was flying across the ocean that I was leaving one valley of the blind and just coming to another. I couldn't help but wonder which is worse. Villagers who can't take in the breathtaking beauty of the Zambian countryside or educated, wealthy Americans like me who live in extravagant grace of God and don't see him for who he is. So, as you can imagine, I've got a lot of unpacking to do in, in this. And I know, I know, everybody hates the guy who goes to Africa and then is like, now we've got to sell everything. But we do. We've got to sell everything. Um, just two convictions that I left with. One is that as a church and individually, we must be concerned about the poor, the blind, the helpless, the widow, the orphan. We must. It is close to the heart of Jesus. We must. To those who have been given much, much is expected. And we as a, as a church have been given much. We've been given an opportunity to leverage our education, our wealth, our engineers, our world. We, we can move the world with our influence and we must. Because someday we're going to stand before that risen Lord and be held accountable for what he's given us. Now I say that to say I know, I know, I know that giving is not always helping. I know that it is hard. I know that it is complex. I know that it needs to be done in a smart way. I know that it's not just about the physical needs, that the gospel has to be taken in. I know that. But you know what? I'm looking around the room and we have some smart people. I think we can figure this out. Second thing is that our wealth does not protect us from the worst sort of poverty, destitution, hunger, or blindness. Just as we must be about helping people there, we must be about helping people here in our own valley of blindness. That just as they need a nun to come alongside them and show them, you know what, when you wash your kid's face, use a different rag. It'll stop trachoma. We need people in our world helping families and communities all around, all around in our valley of blindness. Helping people to see Jesus more clearly every day. I'm going to close with just this little tool. 
I don't know if you'll find it helpful or not, but I, it was handed out as you came in. I'm just going to throw this out there. You can do what you want with it. There was a guy named James Engel back in the 1970s who came up with this scale. And I really thought as we talk about, as you see how Jesus interacted with this blind man, how he healed him in a multiple step process, that he led him from, from a little bit of clarity to a little bit of clarity until he could see clearly. In the same way that he took the disciples on a long journey so that they could finally see him and say, my Lord and my God. In the same way, I just want to encourage you to say, you know what, we can't necessarily take a blind person and let them see instantly. But if someone is down here, they're just now having some awareness of the supernatural. We're not expecting them to jump on board and start sharing, become a Christian and start sharing their faith tomorrow. That our job, just like these nuns, just like these, all these volunteers over there, our job is just to help people take the next step. See Jesus a little bit more clearly. That as we think about this, we should think not in terms of like, oh, I have this one conversation. This is my one opportunity. I can't screw it up. I've got to tell them everything they need to know about Jesus instantly so they can say yes. If you do that, you will never share your faith. But if you think, wow, this person doesn't even know that God's at work in the world. I just need to help them see the grace of God today. If you think, wow... This person is, is just now starting to have some positive attitudes about Jesus and about the gospel. They need to know a little bit more that maybe they'll be open to the fact that Jesus didn't just die in some generic sense, but he died for you. This person's at a point of repentance and faith. You can see it in their heart already. They're feeling guilty over their sins and they know that they need something. Well, that's when you can say, wow, I know what you need. That as we do this, as we work, as we function in this valley of blindness, that maybe we can help people see Jesus a little bit more clearly so that we can see more of that. People with the testimony that I was blind, but now I see. Two applications, real practical. In two weeks, we're going to have Share the Well. Um, It's an opportunity to give money to some of our international missions projects. I know that's not the answer to everything. But I can say this because I'm not asking for money from me. I'm asking it for God's causes and for our missionaries. Let's be generous. The second thing is Christianity Explored is coming up. I I don't know if God's going to pull that together or not. I don't know. I do know that there is a need for something like that, though. Christianity Explored is designed for those people who are anywhere between, oh, probably a negative seven and a positive three. Anyone in that range would really fit into that, where they're just, we go through the gospel of of Mark, and we show people progressively, just like Jesus showed the disciples, a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more about Jesus, until the end, they can see the gospel more clearly. It's seven weeks. If, if you yourself find yourself on that scale saying, you know, I, I'm somewhere on that scale, somewhere between a negative seven and a three, maybe this would work for me, you should come be part of that. If, if you think, ah, I have friends that should be part of that, maybe you should invite them and come with them. This is just a practical step. It's not the answer to everything. I'm sure God will work his own thing out in you. Some of you are probably going to leave here and sell everything you have and move to Malawi now, which is good. But if you can't do that, they share the well in Christianity Explored. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you, Lord, that your work is so much bigger than us, that you don't need us, but you invite us into your work anyways. 
Thank you, Lord, that you give us the privilege of showing other people your son. God, I I pray that we would be a church that is about your business and that has your heart. I pray that you would show us how we can support your work wherever we find it across the world. I pray that we would be a church that helps alleviate the suffering of the poor. God, I pray that you would show us how to leverage our best skills, our best leadership, our best influence, not not to give our career a boost, not to give our church name a boost, but Lord, that we would leverage it for your kingdom's sake, whether we're part of that equation or not. God, even now, I pray for those all over the world, women like Exilda, and Catherine, and Rosemary, men like James, who are pouring out their lives right now to see your name glorified. I pray that we would do the same in our neighborhood in Jesus' name. Amen.